You're listening to On Human Rights, where we talk to experts around the world about the latest and most important issues on human rights and humanitarian law. We're broadcasting from the Rao Wallenberg Institute of Human Rights and Humanitarian Law in Lund, Sweden. I'm Gabriel Stein. Today we have a special episode for you. We have our senior researcher, Alejandro Fuentes, who's interviewing Professor Tove H. Malloy. She is a teacher at the Europe Universität Flensburg in Germany and heads up the European Center for Minority Issues. And in this discussion, they talk about the dynamics of minority-majority relations in Europe. Enjoy. So, Tove, welcome to the Rowe Wallenberg Institute. It's a pleasure to have you here today and to have the chance to discuss with you about minority rights. And talking about minority rights, my first questions to you will be connected with your own interest on minorities. As a scholar, you have dedicated your professional career to study and contribute to the development of minority rights. Why? Uh, what was the reason for that kind of professional choice? Well, thank you, first of all, very much for inviting me uh, to this lovely institute, which is always a pleasure to visit. And thank you for the question. I mean, it, it is true that I am dedicating my life to this. I, Being a Dane, um, you learn in, uh, in history lesson that Denmark has a little bit of a traumatic uh, experience with minorities in, in our history. And uh, this is also what I learned, and I had a, a father who was very interested in, in introducing me to uh, the areas uh, of Denmark where uh, we have now uh, minorities living, as well as the, the big issue of uh, Danish minorities outside Denmark. And this sort of uh, has early on created my interest in this. Mm -hmm. Then when I later on, uh, I joined the Danish Foreign Service and I was at one point, I was uh, stationed in Hungary. And there I learned that uh, specifically the issue of national minorities is a very European uh, question and a very, uh, not just uh, as I thought, maybe a question in in Denmark and Germany, where we have history, but certainly in Central Europe. Uh, Hungary having uh, more than a million uh, so-called uh, national minorities living outside mm. their borders because of the changing history of Europe. So I really, during that time, began to interest, uh, to create this interest of uh, looking into minority issues, eventually, of course, then going through uh, with uh, my work uh, for my PhD and focusing specifically there on the intergovernmental uh, cooperation mm -hmm. in Europe that addresses uh, such minority issues and that, of course, being the Council of Europe uh, for the most part. Uh, and that's what I ended up doing my uh, doctoral work on. So uh, now I'm at the point where I find it's one of the most exciting political issues in Europe. Maybe not everyone will agree with that, but it certainly is a hot topic still today, although many of these historical events go back hundreds of years, hundreds of years. You are talking about the importance of the Council of Europe 
uh, as an institution that could deal with the promotion and protection of minorities. And that will lead me to my second question, which is connected with your current engagements with the Advisory Committee on the Framework Conventions for the Protection of National Minorities, uh, uh, representing Denmark. And uh, do you think that the Advisory Committee, the Framework Convention, Council of Europe, as institutions and instruments and uh, potentially through the creation of tools that they have the possibility to do, can do they really advance uh, and contribute for the advancement of the protection of minority rights or is an utopia that will never uh, really be achieved? Well, I, I really think that uh, it's shown. I mean, you can see it, it has been a, a really positive development. Uh, success story, of course, is, is up to the individual to, to determine, but there's definitely positive uh, developments throughout uh, Europe over the last uh, 30, 40 years. Because the Council of Europe, don't forget, began already in the 80s looking into the protection of national minorities through the Congress of Local and Regional Authorities. Uh, and then after the breakup of uh, the, imp uh, the, Rush, the, the Soviet Empire and the breakup of Yugoslavia, they decided to go ahead with a couple of uh, norm normative setting instruments, standard setting instruments in terms of the language charter, the language, the European Charter for Regional Minority Languages, and the uh, Framework Convention for the Protection of National Minorities. And the work has been going on since 98 in these two committees. And for sure, you can see there that there is step-by-step step mm -hmm. incorporation with countries. There is good progress. Some countries more than others, but mm -hmm. there's clearly, I think, now an understanding that this is something which governments are required to do if they have signed up to the document. And once they've signed up to the document, you enter into this dialogue through the monitoring uh, where you f try to assist. It's, it's not really a question of wanting to uh, impose anything. It's a, it's a question of dialogue and trying to assist the countries in implementing these standards for the protection of national minorities. And mm -hmm. I would say, and not because I'm a member of the committee at the moment, but I would say that also other um, committees and, and many members before me have shown that uh, it is possible. It is possible to have this dialogue with governments, with authorities. Uh, of course, in, in some instances, there are hiccups, there are reluctance, maybe, in certain areas of protection. And that, again, varies from country to country, depending on maybe history or uh, legacies of uh, communism or mm -hmm in many cases also because lack of, uh, in fact, uh, enough funding for this particular area of human rights uh, protection. Uh, some countries may down-prioritize minority protection. Uh, others are very proud at their record, uh, records in this. 
So, um, since we're now almost into uh, 20 years of doing this, I, I definitely think we can talk about uh, good progress in this area. Just to state a little bit with the work done by the different institutions connected with the Council of Europe, and because we are uh, discussing minority rights in Europe, uh, it's unavoidable to refer to the situation of Roma, uh, which is the largest minority or pan-European minority that uh, the Council of Europe is dealing with and is setting a standard in order to protect and promote the rights and the access of rights for the members of this uh, minority group. Do you think that in all of this year it has been a concrete progression and advancement in connection with their condition of living in different countries of Europe or we still uh, are facing a situation in which the lack of access to the same level of rights in connection with the majority population in all of those countries where they live is still far to be uh, fully achieved. I definitely think that there is much work to be done in that particular area. Uh, they, they are protected, of course, under, for instance, the Framework Convention. Uh, but I do think, as an expert, it's my opinion that uh, many of the issues that the Roma communities are faced with are linked to basic human rights uh, provisions. And this is uh, not entirely what the Framework Convention does. So you cannot, in a sense, expect that uh, a better condition for those Roma communities will happen only by looking at a minority rights instrument. Uh, you need to look at it much broader. And I think that's where countries, governments, member states of the Council of Europe and also the European Union need to uh, increase their attention and their willingness to implement the simple basic human rights, social rights. Uh, that's where the issues are the most um, crucial at the moment with that particular group, the, the Roma. And if we could get to a point where governments would be more, would pay more attention to the social rights and the basic human rights of, of Roma and, and work on that, then I think uh, down the line we could also see progress in terms of the traditional minority rights such as cultural rights, uh, certain education rights, uh, and political participation. Uh, but they, in a sense, must go hand in hand. And uh, therefore, the community that needs to assist governments needs to be broad enough. It's not enough only to look to minority rights instruments. It, we really need to look at uh, fundamental rights, if we're mm -hmm. talking about the EU, and generally basic human rights, if we're talking about the broader uh, geographic area of uh, Europe. And um, if uh, we think about the universalization of the universal access of rights, uh, in this case in connection with the Roma community, but uh, not only, and now uh, I'm thinking to the refugee community living in Europe, uh, the newcomers, which are considered 
a new minority or potentially new minority group in Europe uh, and which has generated very large debate in the current um, scholar community but also in the mass media. So how the minority discourses, the minority scholars, those that has been dealing with the protection of national minorities in Europe could contribute to the enlargement of the access to the enjoyment of basic rights in connection with this new community that has joined the European soil? Well, that, that's a large question. Um, I think it's important to distinguish a little bit between the different groups here. I mean, refugees, asylum seekers, uh, that's one category, and, and there are international uh, documents that actually protect their rights under the UN system. Then you have migrants, and there, of course, you have different types of migrants. You have economic migrants. Perhaps also uh, some are politically pushed out of their country but may not qualify as refugees mm. per se. Uh, and then you have the category which you call new minorities that may be second, third generation uh, members of immigrant families, but they're no longer immigrants because they're actually born and raised in the country where they are being then categorized as a new minority because they don't fall under the category of so-called old minorities or traditional historic minorities that have maybe resided in a homeland region for maybe hundreds of years. So we have all these categories and that makes it really complex mm -hmm. and complicated. Uh, but of course we have a set of uh, provisions in, for instance, the Framework Convention that could very well also be imagined to uh, be extended to what I call new minorities, meaning minorities that are born in a country but where they still reside in a family structure where they want to continue to uh, nurture uh, the identity of their parents, let's say, and they still want to maybe contain and maintain their uh, mother tongue language so they can continue to communicate with grandparents and uh, maybe even family back in, in the original country. But they are uh, most likely even citizens of the country where mm. they're now living. There, there I think you, you, you have some, some potential uh, or you could say you have some overlap where traditional minorities have these rights to their own schools, to using their own language both in public and in private, even to use their language in, um, in contact with authorities. And if you have large new minorities, which you do in a number of European countries, I don't see why we couldn't extend some rights uh, of those I just mentioned to these groups. Um, of course, it doesn't mean that when you then go to the town hall, you have to be able to provide uh, service to groups in 25 different languages. That would not be feasible. But when you have a larger group in a certain area, can be an urban area, 
or a rural area, you can maybe accommodate for that and say in that particular area, yes, we will provide maybe in a, th in a third language, which is the language of that so-called new minority. I, th I think there, there is room mm. for that. Uh, and that will lead me to perhaps my final question, connection with uh, the accommodation of uh, minorities in today's Europe. Uh, we see in today's Europe a counter-reaction to the accommodation of new minorities in connection to providing them more rights. Uh, and that counter-reaction could be perceived in the way that uh, European citizens are voting. Voting for proposals, uh, political proposals that enhance and strengthen the national identity, uh, which in a, a contrary sense to lecture will mean that is a counter-reaction to those identities that I perceive as foreign. So how is your perception for today's Europe? Will be Europe able to resolve this internal challenge, this internal uh, contradiction that has on trying to accommodate minorities on one hand and providing them access to the same level of enjoyment to rights of the majority, but also dealing with this increasing perception of identity threat that is uh, manifested in the way that uh, voters are voting? Well, that's a very large question uh, because I think that, that uh, it, it comes down to whether a country uh, is sort of uh, moving to towards a collective understanding of itself as a plurality. Um, and that requires, of course, that political elites then promote pluralism as part of the national identity. But if you don't have political elites and members of uh, governments promoting that kind of a uh, picture and the scope of a nation or an, a, a country, then it's difficult then to see how we get, a, get to a situation where diversity is considered something good, something positive. Uh, instead, you get the situation that you see uh, emerging in some countries in Europe where diversity is considered a threat, a threat, as you say, to the national identity, even though sometimes it's a almost hypothetical um, picture created in people's mind, because if you go in the street and you talk to people and you ask them, uh, your neighbor looks different than you, maybe he speaks a different language, don't you like him? Many people say, yes, of course I like him, he's my neighbor. Uh, but if you ask the politicians, the politicians will say, well, we don't like this group, we don't like that group. So I always find this a problem, and uh, it's something also which we experience when we monitor the protection of minorities, that politicians and what they say unfortunately set the agendas and if they don't s say 
the right thing and, and the correct things. If they don't say things that promote pluralism and diversity, then the people that listen to them are not going to be automatically thinking in those terms. So I really, I would put the onus on our leaders, our politicians. Um, of course, also, uh, parents have an obligation to teach their children about pluralism and the good of diversity. But it, it's not easy in a situation where you see uh, populism rising for various reasons because of, for instance, influx of refugees, uh, migrants, and so forth. Uh, I think Europe has been through this before. And, and I think we will also, uh, we will find a way out of this one. But uh, it seems to me that unfortunately sometimes Europe has to go through this mm. for a period of time and then it comes out at the other end of the tunnel and feel uh, bruised, uh, disarray, what have you, and then it has to find its leg to stand on again. I hope we can learn from the past, but we don't always. So yeah, I, mm. I, I hope that uh, European leaders will understand that minorities, in a sense, is what we all are. I mean, we all, one way or the other, belong to a minority. I mean, because what is, is a minority is, of course, in our, in our mind, and even though you may not have a different skin color or speak a different language. You can be a minority because you are a woman or you can be a minority because you belong to a certain uh, sexual minority and so forth. So there are many different ways of being a minority. Mm -hmm. So neglecting minority rights, whether we're talking about traditional language minority rights or rights based on other social and even demographic um, markers, it's, it's a no-go. I mean, it's, uh, it's uh, you know, making a goal in your own uh, goalie boot. Uh, and, and you don't do that in football, so no. why do it in politics? I think I will uh, finish this uh, podcast interview with that phrase, in the sense that neglecting minorities is neglecting ourselves. Because all of us have a multiplicity of identities, and some of them, in certain situations, became a minority. Uh, and that is, a, I think, that's a very good message for hope. If we assume our minorities' size and minority identities, most likely we will assume also the protection of minority groups as part of ourselves. Thank you very much, Tobe. Thank and you. thank you for spending this time with us at the Raoul Wallenberg Institute and to engage in this fascinating discussion. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was Professor Tove H. Malloy, who heads up the European Center for Minority Issues, speaking to RWI senior researcher Alejandro Fuentes. On Human Rights is broadcast from the Raoul Wallenberg Institute of Human Rights and Humanitarian Law in Loon, Sweden. I'm Gabriel Stein. Thanks so much for listening today. We'll be back soon with more talking to experts around the world about the latest and most important issues on human rights and humanitarian law. <laughs>